build it and every guess that you ever needed. Sports cards after hours keep the hobby heated. Updates, hobby talk like you've never seen it. Sports cards live and nothing could ever beat it. Sports cards is a lifestyle. Sports cards and we live now. Welcome to another episode of Sports Cards Live with your host, Jeremy Lee. All right, here we go, everybody, and welcome to episode number 130 of Sports Cards Live. Today is February the 12th, 2022. My name is Jeremy Lee. I do want to thank last Saturday's guest, Tim Getch, CEO of ComC. Great episode with Tim, his third time on the show. Check it out on the YouTube channel in the archives. By the way, tomorrow is obviously Super Bowl. We will not be doing Collectible Live tomorrow, taking the week off. Back the following week. Next week, however, we will have the PWCC Premier Auction Party with Adam Graham, possibly Jesse Bro, Craig from PWCC as well. And also, tomorrow night, after the Super Bowl, I will be appearing on... The chat on the Rolling with FD channel, it is in the ticker right now. This is the show that is FD, and he is having a uh, a show tomorrow night with us with several people joining him over a couple of segments. I will be on with him at 6 30 Pacific, 9 30 Eastern, along with some other people that are shown right here. So be sure to check that out. Looking forward to joining FD and actually meeting FD for the first time. And that will be tomorrow live during his show. Shout out to channel supporter Whatnot. Thank thank you to Whatnot for all of their support. We're going to bring it up on the ticker. Excuse me, on the ticker right there. Check them out for Buy It Now's one-minute auctions around the clock by some of the best breakers in the business. And again, I will be doing another auction stream on that platform, on the Whatnot platform very soon. Also, don't forget, Sport Card Expo is in Edmonton, April 15th to 17th, and again in Toronto, June 2nd to 5th. And of course, the Mint Collective is coming up on March 25th to 27th, and I will be at all three of those events. Thank you to all of you subscribers, viewers, podcast listeners. Greatly appreciate you all. And I must say, I love it seems every episode we're getting one or more people who who have always just listened coming into the live show and joining. I invite all you podcast listeners to Try and make it out to a live show sometime. It's so much more fun to have you here. All right, let's get to tonight's guest. As always, your comments and questions are in play, so don't be shy. Tonight's guest got his start in the hobby back in 2000, busting packs at Target. In high school, he was running group breaks on YouTube and Blowout, and in college, started buying and selling vintage. In 2015, he started working at Heritage Auctions as the sports consignment director, left in 2020 to go off on his own as an independent sports card and memorabilia consultant. His favorite teams are the Florida Marlins, Miami Dolphins, Miami Heat, and the Dallas Stars. And his favorite athletes are LeBron James, Tom Brady, Miguel Cabrera, Wayne Gretzky, and Tiger Woods. Originally and currently hailing from Miami, Florida, let's bring him out, Nick Sapiro. Welcome to Sports Cards Live. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Jeremy. How are you doing? I am good, man. Wow, that was a mouthful, your intro, but I'm glad there's a lot there. You've been around for a while in this hobby. You've got some great experience. I think the audience is going to be interested to learn all about it, your journey so far. Before we get into all that, though, Nick, tomorrow is the Super Bowl. Do you have any picks? Do you have any favorites? Are you a fan of either of these teams? Where do you stand on tomorrow's big game? Uh, I honestly 
just want to see a good game. Honestly, I think I think the Rams are going to win, and I think they're going to dominate based off their dominant defense. Um, so I, I'm pretty bullish on the Rams tomorrow. I think the score is probably going to be somewhere around 27 to 14, maybe. You know, I, I, I definitely think uh, you know the Rams defense isn't going to allow more than 20 points. All right, there you go. You know, I don't really have a, a pick myself. I'm not uh, informed enough, but from what I'm hearing, most people are picking the Rams. So I'd probably bet on the Bengals in that case. You know, go contrarian and and probably win. But we'll see. We'll see. We'll see how it goes tomorrow. I'm looking forward to it. I got some. Do you have anything planned? Are you to watch the game? Uh, I'm going to the. I'm in Indianapolis, so I'm going to the Pacers game tomorrow, and then right after the game, heading home, and you know, probably just watching by myself on the couch. Yeah, nice, nice. We're having some friends over, gonna watch the watch the game, have some dinner, and uh, and then I'm gonna go on uh, rolling with FD after that. So should be exciting. I'm looking forward to watching the game too. I'm sure everybody uh, who is with us tonight and uh, in the chat, welcome to everybody who is there. We're going to get to you guys all shortly, but uh, thank. Oh, we, I see we have some. We have some. Here we go. Cutler's card says the Rams D is going to take it, so that's consistent with what you're thinking. Frank Estella, welcome. Says go, Matt Stafford. You know, as I was showing you before, I picked up Matt Stafford's uh, top's finest rookie card, a refractor today. Just found it at, a lo- at the local show, and what what a what a beautiful card. Here, I'll show it. I'm going to show it on the after hour show too. But I picked this up today, but I also picked this up today. So. If you don't follow me on Instagram, I showed them on Instagram, but I picked up both a Stafford and a Joe Burrow rookie today at the local card show thinking, you know what? I'm going to go against one of my kind of rules, which is don't buy a card the day before the biggest game the player ever played because you're probably going to pay a premium. But I thought, you know, these two weren't that expensive. I'm going to, uh, they're going to help enhance my experience tomorrow of watching the game. And I got to, you know, spread a little love around at the local show. So not too bad. And beautiful cards that I just really couldn't take my eyes off either of them. This one was actually graded, and I, I actually broke it out of the slab today because I'd never heard of this grading company. But this is here, here's the the remnants. Uh, this is this is the, the case it was in, and you can see how I managed to get in there just by hammering at the top and then putting the flat edge in and, and opening it up along the edges. But uh, this was graded by uh, HOFG.ca, Hall of Fame Grading, Joe Burrow in a nine anyway it's been freed from that slab i think it looks a little bit better in the mag holder so let's get to you now nick let's get to you. enough of the football game we're all going to watch it tomorrow i want to start with your history in the hobby let's talk about your journey learn a little bit more about you and what you're up to so you you'd mentioned to me that you started uh group breaking in in high school on YouTube. So were you actually, and I'm saying the intro, were you actually the group breaker or were you just participating? I mentioned to you that you were breaking, but I'm not a hundred percent on that actually. Yeah, I was an approved group break host on uh, blowout cards form. So uh, pretty much, you know, hosting group breaks, you know, from, you know, pretty much from my, my room in high school, my childhood home. And uh, it was, it was fun, you know, it was a way for me to kind of enjoy the hobby back then. It's, it's not as it is uh, today, you know, where everything is live, you know, everybody's busting live, you know, back then you actually just recorded your, you know, once, once it filled, you, you randomized everything. So everything was uh, just recorded, you know, via camera and, you know, and then you uploaded it on YouTube. So nobody really watched anything live, you know, so, you know, everybody wanted to see the, the packs being busted, but actually, 
you didn't get to pretty much watch the break until it actually happened. So, um, which is pretty different from today's, you know, standard to where I don't think, uh, I don't think anybody would probably allow somebody to kind of uh, not break it live, you know, anymore. So, you know, times have definitely changed, but it was, it was a fun, I kind of just did it because it was the easiest way for me to afford breaking product. You know, I kind of just rolled, you know, I, I would join into the group break myself. So, uh, I, you know, I buy in and maybe I got a, a spot for free, you know, in the break for hosting it, you know, and, you know, group breaks are, are fun, but they're also a lot of work on, on, on people's end. You have to do a lot of sorting, especially if, you know, if, if it's a, a base heavy, you know, set like a, a tops football or a tops baseball, just, you know, standard, you know, type of products where you're busting a case and you're getting 2000 base and you have to, you know, ship out every card. You know that 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 was fun, but it was also rewarding. Sometimes you hit in the break, sometimes you didn't, or sometimes you hit something good for someone else, and that was that was the joy of of of, of doing these group breaks. Yeah, and I mean, you're right. Things have changed. You 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 need to break live now. People are uh, people are weary that there could be a lot of funny business if you're not doing it live, keeping your hands in the in the in the screen at all times, all the cards, the packs. You know, so makes sense it has certainly evolved quite a bit but so you then you then moved on and started dealing in vintage cards so why did you kind of pivot over from breaking modern stuff to uh dealing in vintage singles so i kind of like i mean i i shifted away kind of from modern i mean modern's the era that i grew up in and i i was always attracted to those cards and uh, they always have a place near and dear to my heart but uh you know vintage really caught my eye in college just because you know, I was really attracted to, you know, the stability of having a Hall of Fame rookie card. So I wanted to build every Hall of Fame rookie card. And I pretty much built my entire for baseball and I got close in football. I just never completed it. Um, I, uh, I built pretty much every Hall of Fame rookie in college. So I had just local um, local guys that were buying collections and they knew that, you know, I was the guy to go to, uh, whether you had a, you know, a, a mid, a mid grade Ricky Henderson rookie. Um, I was the guy to just, you know, that would just buy it. And I just would buy in quantities. So like I'd amass like 200 Ricky Henderson tops rookies, or if they came to me and were was like, Hey, you know, like I was heavily in Atlanta. So like John Smoltz and Tom Glavin rookies, you know, uh, you know, is, is prime in the, you know, junk wax era. So there was guys in the local area that had four or 5,000 count boxes of these, of these guys. So I'd buy those for, you know, five cents a piece. And it was, it was, it was remarkable to me that I could buy so many hall of fame rookies, you know, so I, that's how I, I kind of built my collection. And then, and then how did you sort of parlay that and that experience over to getting a job at heritage and becoming a consignment director? So, you know, through making connections on various forms, especially like Net54, you know, one of the moderators on Net54, you know, he sold his collection through Heritage Auctions. So um, when he sold that collection, I was pretty close to him. I had done work for him um, and he knew me pretty well and he knew I was graduating college soon. So he was like, hey, you know, by chance, would you be interested in a job in the industry? I was like, yeah, you know, I'd love to play with card, you know, I'd love to play with cardboard for a living, of course. So uh, pretty much I, you know, uh, my leading up to my senior year, so the summer of, uh, the summer leading into my senior year, uh, I already had the job at Heritage, so it was already lined up for a full year. So um, I already had my job and, uh, you know, right 
I literally, I think, moved right after I graduated. I moved like, you know, three days later and I started working like four days later right out of college. Um, and I was there for, for five years. So, it was, you know, it was a fun experience. So let's dig a bit more into that job because, it, you know, it's interesting. The, the auction houses have a, a pretty significant position within our hobby. And I'm guessing that, you know, you learned some pretty cool things while you were there. Maybe some things that the, the average collector uh, isn't aware of. So I'm going to put you on the spot here. I'm going to ask you, you know, what or what were one of the one or two of the key things that you felt you learned uh, while you were at Heritage? And, and then I'm going to ask you also, is there anything that you kind any sort of behind the curtains type of type of things that that go on that you might want to that you could share with us as uh, as an audience? Sure. So so personally, in in terms of like my collection, so I was I was a Hall of Fame collector, you know, like you know, collecting all these rookie cards. Um, and when I got working at Heritage, I was like, oh man, I have a great collection. And uh, you get to see, you know, some of the best collections in the world being offered, but you also get to see. Uh, the quantity of stuff, you know, uh, of, of all these cards, like, you know, anybody could go on the PSA population reports and tell you the quantities. But when you're actually looking at it in person and, you know, and handling these cards on a day to day and seeing how many come through, even in raw state that, you you know, you need a grade. It's pretty remarkable, you know, and, and it kind of showed me, hey, you know, I, I, I kind of want to shift away from this. So that kind of that's what kind of led me to liquidate, you know, most of my Hall of Fame collection and gravitate toward, you know, rarer pieces, you know, and that's probably, you know, the insight that, you know, I, you know, I probably have like I, you know, quickly I kind of was like within a four or five month span of being at the auction house, I kind of was like. I really don't want the more, you know, the stuff I see every day and handle every day. I want the stuff that, you know, comes through the, the door, but like, you know, maybe is offered three or four times a year, you know, so that that's what I was, you know, that's what it kind of taught me. It was just, hey, you know, focus in on, you know, focus in more on rarity. You know, it's okay, you know, to be attracted to more common stuff and more mass appeal stuff because, those stuff will that that stuff will always be valuable. But to me, I you know I I wanted to kind of bridge the gap and find areas that were maybe you know not so overplayed as I thought or not so uh, you know that you didn't see that many ticket offerings in in the auction you know five years ago. You didn't see you know that many photo offerings or that you know you saw game worn offerings, but you know you could kind of you know know that okay you know one jersey of a specific player was maybe offered uh you know for that one auction as opposed to maybe you know uh you know a heritage where a card auction is four thousand lots you were uh, you know there was 45 you know jordan offering jordan rookie card offering so that you know it kind of put a lot of things in perspective for me that's a great answer man i mean you know, be, there's there's a whole movement right now in, in, amongst you know what I'm what I'm sort of consuming in the hobby, uh, as far as people are looking for and valuing scarcity more than I think we were you know up until pretty recently. You know, generally speaking, of course, and uh, you know when you said that you want some you want to acquire pieces that only you only see maybe one or three times a year. I had uh, Burry Klein on on with uh, with me on Collectible Live last week, and he made the comment that he he's not looking for for what he referred to as one click sort of items, things that you can find with one click on your computer. He's he likes the hunt, and um, is that does that resonate with you? Like 
the hunt? Are you are you interested in the hunt as well, or do you want the things to sort of just appear in front of you and make it easy to find? I mean, I, I tell people in this hobby, you need to put in the time and the and really the effort and do the research. I mean, I, I don't I couldn't even count the number of hours that I spent just late nights just searching for things on eBay where it was like an endless rabbit hole where I was just like, man, like, you know, I, I really hope to find something and it, it, it would be remarkable. So if I go down a photo rabbit hole, like I'd spend hours and hours scrolling through and I would do like the vaguest search as possible to where I was sorting through maybe, you know, between 65 to 100,000, you know, searches on eBay. So I'm, I'm going through the full bulk of the full bulk of what's listed on eBay. And, uh, you know, trying to find the, that needle in the haystack that I, you know, that maybe I didn't even know that I wanted. And in some cases, I had targets that I wanted. And I would just be searching and endlessly searching and just, uh, you know, not find the piece and maybe get even unlucky to where the piece would be listed. You know, I, I remember this Peyton Manning photo specifically. He's a, for photography, he's a very tough, uh, you know, he's in the era. He's in the, the era where it's kind of a cutoff for photography. So photography kind of cuts off in like the mid 90s. So uh, I was searching one night and I was like, man, maybe I could find one. Maybe I could find one. And one just I was like, oh, it, it, maybe there's not one available. I, I know they exist, but maybe there's just not one available at this time. I went to bed and then I wake up to a text messages from one of my buddies who also collects photos. And he's like, hey, I woke up this morning and I bought a photo. And uh, he sent me a photo of a Peyton Manning. And I was like, man, I was like, I was searching till four, four o'clock in the morning. And I saw when it was listed and it was listed at 630 in the morning. It was like the difference of two and a half hours to like, you know, finding a, you know, something that you really need. And, uh, you know, it just didn't coincide with what, you know, and my buddy got lucky. Funny how, how, how important timing is when you are shopping on eBay, you never know when that item that you are looking for is going to get listed. It could happen in the middle of the night. And by the time you wake up, it could be gone. Lesson learned. Note to everybody, um, check your eBay at least once an hour, 24 hours a day. That's, that, there's, there's your advice. Don't sleep. Uh, yeah, don't sleep. Don't sleep. That's right. That's right. So I want to go back, though, to Heritage for a moment. Is there anything sort of like any trade secrets, like that kind of nothing that's, that you can't speak of, nothing confidential or that you know you that you shouldn't share, but anything that kind of like people would want to know about what goes on at the auction houses that uh, that you'd be able to share? Sure. I mean, the amount of calls that you get and the amount of emails that you get is, you know, pretty drastic to put an auction together definitely takes a lot of work and a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of manpower, a lot of man hours and a lot of, you know, sorting through phone calls where or emails where you think, hey, this person may not have anything. And most of those, I'd say 90 to 95 percent of the calls and emails that they get really don't lead to anything. And, you know, the 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 most odd ones are the ones that, you know, potentially lead to something. So sometimes you, you get in, you know, a call and you're talking to somebody and they're like, Oh man, I don't think this guy has anything. And then you ask more and more questions. And sometimes, you know, people aren't as descriptive as they should be on some things where you come across, you know, six figure, seven figure items, you know, on, on, the, on, on a dime, just based off, you know, somebody, you know, that you thought had nothing. So, you know, asking the right questions is always something, you know, you kind of like learn what questions to ask, you know, you kind of go through the processes where some people, you know, especially if they're related to a player, 
they may not think that some of their stuff is valuable, you know, and they may not like, you know, they think of that person that you're talking about, which may be your idol as their father or their sibling or, you know, whatever. They don't really look at it from your perspective, you know, that you idolize him or that, you know, certain factors came into play, like, you know, very oddball things like uh, I dealt with uh, Mort Cooper's son, who uh, Mort Cooper, uh, you know, won won a World Series and was an, was uh, the league MVP. He was a pitcher, and um, and I I talked to him and I, he was like, hey, I don't know if my father's stuff is worth anything. And I was like, your father died extremely young, and you know, and his autograph is very valuable to to most collectors because he won an MVP, and uh, and he he had like you know uh, six figures worth of stuff just lying around where he just mailed me a shoebox and he's like. Let me know if there's anything in the box. I think the box is worthless. And it's like he has six figures in that box. So, you know, it, it, you come across these situations where, you know, some, some people think they have worthless things. And, you know, and it turns out that they have a gold mine of, of, of items. Right. Oh, that, that's a, see, that's a great answer right there. Basically, learn what questions to ask. And you never know what someone might have unless you're really will, unless you know those questions. So that's, that's a great answer, especially since you weren't prepped for that question. And uh, so well done. Well done. Nick. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to go to the comments now. We've got lots. and I'm going to start at uh, one of the most recent ones right here. Skeppy brings up this question. He says, at what point is something too rare, though? If the item has any intent as an investment being too rare, it can be difficult to match or exceed the amount originally paid. Any thoughts or examples? to look at. So I'll, I'll put that this one over to you, Nick. Uh, what would you say to this comment? No, I, I think that's a good point. I think extremely rare items are the, the, the items that nobody really knows what they're worth. You know, they're in some cases one of a kind items and you can't really put a price tag on. And that when it comes to an auction setting is very tough because, you know, you as the individual consigning or you as the individual buying, don't really know what it's worth or, you know, you have maybe, uh, you know, an inclination, of, hey, this should be based off rarity, it should be worth X. But sometimes those, you know, rarity and price don't always equate. So, you know, I, I, I really think that, you know, it's it's one of those things where, um, like, photography is, is one of those examples I use. A lot of these photos, you know, have, you know, one type one or just, uh, you know, a few. And there's such a limited collector base. Like there's not, you know, it's not the card market. You know, there's, it's not a buyer pool of, of you know, hundreds or thousands of people. Um, the card market, I mean, the photo market is very tight and there's only 10 or, you know, 20 huge collectors of this. But when a rare piece comes up, you know, it's driven by these collectors because they understand, hey, this is my one opportunity to own those items. And, you know, markets do take time to develop, too. So sometimes you may buy a rare piece and think, man, I'm the only one that cared about that item at that point in time. But maybe you wait five to 10 years and then people are actually looking for what you bought. So, you know, markets do develop and some markets take so much more time than other markets to develop that, you know, that, you know, maybe corresponds more to the rarity and, and, and the price will reflect that rarity. So it's, it's that that's a, a very tough question and a good question. Yeah, for sure. A couple of follow-ups that Steve Menzi, uh, who runs the the Sport Card Expos up in Canada, says I was wondering about that too. Whether Gretzky's Sportscaster cards are too rare to be valuable, and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with this card or not, Nick. But from my perspective, Steve and everybody else, 
they're too big to be valuable. But that said, I know they are valuable. They're just they're quite oversized. And uh, and so I think that has a, a little bit to do with the fact that not everybody, you know, not all hockey collectors or Gretzky collectors uh, pursue that card. Jake Dahl says, like like extremely rare George Vezina autograph or game-worn sweater. For those types of pieces, though, Nick, I, I believe there might be one or two known George Vezina autographs, I think, something like that. But the a game-worn sweater, like if something like that were to all of a sudden appear on the market, I mean, the value would be determined by the auction, by the auction results. And then, and I think that would be extremely valuable because it is such a historical piece of a pioneer, an original Hall of Famer, uh, someone who's still relevant because they award a trophy every year and his name to the most valuable goalie in the in the league. So um, I think that would definitely be valuable as we uh, if that were to appear on the marketplace. Anything to add to those before we go? We move on. Yeah, I mean, those, like some of those pieces that are extremely rare too. You know, the you know us as like an auction appraiser, you know, or like expert giving an opinion. An opinion is an opinion. Sometimes. You know, uh, people may not like your opinion of how you value something, but, you know, you're, you're basing, you know, a lot of my opinions come from concrete, you know, co other concrete facts that have happened, other concrete sales that have happened. But with one of a kind items, you could compare it to something comparable and it get blown out of the water or it just, you know, flop just based off, you know, who's bidding that certain day. You know, it, it's pretty remarkable if one guy is not bidding in an auction what impact it could have overall in, you know, in for, for the market, you know, and I've, you know, there's been times where an item sells one night in an auction and the next day a person is offered double or triple because somebody that night said was like, I forgot, I forgot about this auction and I need to have that item. And, you know, and a guy just overnight makes three times his money just because a guy missed an auction. I'm sure that happens, or I have to think that would happen more than uh, than we would expect because it's all behind the scenes and done privately. So interesting points, man. Really interesting points. Okay, let's uh, let's go back and welcome people to the show, even though we're 25 minutes in. But I want to say hello to everybody. Troy, great to have you, and thanks for keeping me updated on the Flames Islanders game. Jake Dahl, good evening to you. Anthony George says Nick is here tonight. Peter High and Kyler tomorrow on on one of your uh, content pieces. Surely a great show. Thank you, Anthony George. Albert Jones in the house. Frank Gostella in the house. Albert says FD is a good dude. D Perez says FD is excellent. Again, I'll be on with I'll be on tomorrow after the Super Bowl with Roland with FD. That's his the channel, the name of his channel. Check it out. Hello, Jeff McMahon, Cutler's Cards, Daniel Busby. Jim is in the house. Jim, I'm still working on coming to the Vancouver show. April 8th to 10th. Definitely going to work on it. Benny Cromwell, hello to you, and says, go Kings. Jordan Hudson, Jay Lee for president. I'm in the wrong country, Jordan. <laughs> Joe Perot in the house. Good evening, Joe. Crack Card says, Jay Lee for PM. That's that. That's more realistic. I am in Canada. I, I could <laughs> potentially uh, be the prime minister of our country, but no, I potentially could not be. P Pepino Man in the house says, I used to break in front of 7-Elevens as a kid. Breakdance, that is. Good. <laughs> <laughs> can just see you breakdancing, Pepino. Philly Joe, good evening to you. Jake Dahl, what's going on? Birds on the bat. Skeppy in the house, as we know. 0-0 in the Flames-Islanders game. Thank you very much, very much. 
Uh, Purple Haze in the house. What is going on? Mike Molesky said, oh, there we go. You're watching one live. Kids are in bed. Welcome to the live. Troy says, Nick, what is your one item that is not for sale? One item that is not for sale. That's uh, very tough because I have a lot of items that are not for sale. Um, I, you know, it's very tough to really pinpoint one item. Me, I, I kind of, you know, I do sell stuff now and now and then, but like, you know, my photography pieces and stuff are just harder to part with. So, you know, I'd say some of the ones, you know, maybe behind me or that I'll show later in the show. Um, I, you know, I'll, I'll show some pieces, you know, in the show and, you know, I pretty much guarantee you that most of what I'll show today is not for sale. Not because it's, you know, not because it's the most valuable items that I own. It's just, you know, it just reflects like who I am as a collector and, you know, and, and, and it's personable to me. So there's, there's just, there's just a lot of, you know, stuff that is not for sale for me. I just can't pinpoint like off the top of my head, like one item that, you know, is just know. not, yeah. It, it's it's a question i don't like i don't like it's not that i don't like it but when someone asks me like if you could only keep one card which card would? and it's usually people who aren't collectors that ask that question if you could keep one what would it be it's like i, I don't know you could ask me if i could keep 300 which ones would they be I, i'd be more equipped to answer i can't i couldn't pick just ones like take them all at that point i don't want any yeah, I, I think for me and you, Jeremy, like that, that we, you know, you, you, ha you amount such a vast collection and there's people that have very consolidated collections currently. So there's people that have consolidated their collection to the point where it's like very easy to pinpoint like one card or one item within their collection. But when you have like thousands and like I have, you know, tens of thousands of cards where, you know, most people will be like, oh, some of those cards are worthless. Well, they're not worthless to me. Like if like I, you know, it's like, it's like my thousand, you know, my thousand Marlin card collection. It's like, I got precious metal gems. I got, I got good cards in there. I got, you know, but like, you know, I feel like I'm the only one or one of the few people that care about that stuff, but they're, you know, mean, very meaningful to me. Yeah, for sure. I think that it's similar to when you're a player collector, but your player isn't a goat, you know, or, or even close to it, let's say. And those cards, because you had an experience as a youngster, those cards, those items are going to be very dear to you. And most of the most of the rest of the hobby could probably care less, but it doesn't matter. Who, who cares? It's what's important to you. All right. Lucky K says, hello, all. Smash that like button. Thank you, Lucky K. And Tom Bullard, good evening to you. One nothing for the Flames. I just checked the goal. Very nice to see. Go Flame. Troy, you were beat to that reminder, but thank you, Chris C. Welcome to the show. All right. Let's keep on going, Nick. I want us, we're going to switch it up now. Let's talk a bit about memorabilia. We're going to talk about a few, we're going to talk about a few things that aren't sports cards here on Sports Cards Live tonight, but they're 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 related. They're they're you know kind of they're part of what we what we as sports card collectors, they're still in our periphery. We still are aware of things. So we're going to talk about some memorabilia. We're going to touch on tickets. And also photos, which are really what make up your background. But let's start with, with memorabilia for a second. I want to talk about the importance of photo matching when it comes to memorabilia and the parallels between photo matching a piece of memorabilia to grading a sports card. So why don't we start off by really, I mean, I think everybody understands what photo matching is. In case you don't, it's when somebody who owns a piece of memorabilia finds old pictures of that player wearing that memorabilia and then can match markings on that 
piece of memorabilia to the photos that they find. That's photo matching. So how important, Nick, is photo matching towards generating a value for an item? And, you know, to me, it's like a photo matched item, a photo matched piece of memorabilia is similar to a graded card and a non-photo matched might have some similarities to a raw card. Can you just address all that? And am I, is there, are there similarities there? Is it completely different? No, I, I think I think photo matching does bring standardization to the hobby. I mean, it's pretty remarkable that it's a relatively new thing. Like photo matching did exist, you know, let's just say, you know, you know, five or seven years ago, but it wasn't as prevalent. So like now the auction houses, it's like, you know, pretty much, you know, spending a lot of time or, you know, hiring, uh, you know, newer uh, third party authentication companies like Resolution Photo Match. Um, or some of the other ones that do photo matching um, to, you know, evaluate their the pieces in their auction to, you know, try to get a photo match because the photo match adds a substantial value uh, to your item. You know, in some cases, a photo match jersey could sell for double or triple what a non-photo match jersey is. Not to say that that non-photo match jersey isn't real. There's just concrete evidence that a lay, like a layman could just like look at like, you know, me not knowing anything about a jersey per se, I could look at a jersey and say with my own eyes based off the hit mark on the left shoulder, you know, and based off that photo that that is the exact jersey because the hit mark, you know, appears to be, you know, an exact match or certain threads within a jersey or certain repairs within a jersey. So there's various things that you could look at to match and, you know, it, it, it creates uh, you know, a very standardized, you know, and a very, you know, I, I'd say a very simplistic way of looking at a jersey as opposed to a letter of authentication telling you, hey, this jersey came from X game, but that, you know, it doesn't provide any evidence to, you know, how it got to you, you know, or, you know, or why it came from that game, you know, as opposed to a photo, which is, you know, that the, the direct visuals is giving you everything that you need to know about that jersey. Right. So let me ask this question. You know, in, in sports cards, <clears throat> we as collectors, investors, hobby participants, many of us wonder sometimes why a card wasn't graded. So you think, well, you know, so, so you really only are looking, many people are only looking for graded cards. And when you see one that isn't, you kind of question why it isn't graded. Now with, with memorabilia, it's hard, you know, photo, you can't just send the car, the item away and, and it comes back photo matched. There has to be that, that research, that investigation has to occur. And there has to be the existence of something of some photos. So with that said, you know, you think back to, to memorabilia, let's just call it vintage memorabilia, where the players wore the items several times, sometimes for a whole season or more, but definitely for more than one game or, or several games. They often wore it many, many times. So it might be easier, I would think, to find a photo match for some vintage memorabilia pieces. Whereas modern modern memorabilia, it, it, oftentimes the players are wearing a different jersey each game or each period or each quarter or whatever, just to generate that product. And therefore it's going to be harder to find photo matches because that memorabilia is not nearly as used. There may not be any scuffs on any stick marks, puck marks, blood, whatever it may be, you know, just general wear. So with all that said, for the memorabilia collecting community, what like what level of expectation is there generally among the buyers that they, you know, for them to 
expect or to want there to be or to require there to be photo matching on an item that they're going to buy? Some some are going to be nearly impossible. So like, you know, 50s and 60s, you know, even 70s, I mean, even 80s and 90s. I mean, the, it really depends on the quality of, of what you're working with in terms of the photo archive that you have access to. You don't have access, you know, in, in some cases to every game. And even if you had access to photos of every game, the grains, the grains of the photo may not be up to par to be able to match it. So that's a, that's a big thing, you know, and, you know, some, you know, some big names, you know, like, let's just say like Bill Russell or, you know, some of those names they're you know, realistically, they're only going to have, you know, probably they're lucky to have, you know, five, you know, fully photo matched jerseys, probably Jordan, you know, you're lucky to have, you know, 10, you know, bulletproof solid you know photo match jerseys in existence just because you know it's it's very tough to pinpoint you have to go through so many photos and there are companies you know that that you know that have access to archives that are in public so you know that's also helpful and there you know and information is king too so you know let's just say a photo archive is discovered and then published online well you know if an auction occurred a year ago and that archive wasn't available and new evidence shows, you know, a new photo pops up that you had never seen before. And, you know, that could provide you with a photo match that you need for your jersey. So, you know, just because a photo, you know, a, a jersey isn't photo matched at that point in time doesn't mean it can't be photo matched down the road. Um, and also, you know, sometimes these auction houses are, you know, are selling, you know, 2,000 to 4,000 lots or, you know, 1,000 lots a night. So, you know, they, they don't spend, you know, that much time researching the jersey as they should. And maybe even the company that they're outsourcing may not spend that much time because they have to go through all those lots to try to photo match. So, you know, they're spending X amount of time. And if they don't find it within that X period of time, you know, maybe that, you know, if they spend an extra five minutes, they would have found the photo match. So it's not to say that, you know, I can't go on eBay right now and find jerseys that are advertised as game used. And that person may not know that there's a photo match out there. I think now it's a lot more prevalent within the hobby to where most collectors that have a game worn item, you know, understand this photo matching concept and will spend the time to try to photo match it. Um, And now companies, of course, you know, like, you know, the more standardized stuff, like, you know, when you have a Migray or when you have a Panini or, you know, companies that are actually selling or fanatics, companies that are actually selling this, you know, they're already giving you the, you know, exact paperwork that you need to try to photo match that item or or just giving you the photo match itself, like migrate does. So, you know, it's, it's you know, it makes the, with the modern, it makes it a lot easier because you don't really have to do the legwork. I think with the, you know, anything before I'd say like 2015, there's really, you know, you have to do a lot more legwork, you know, and, and research on your end. I want to bring up this question here from Albert Jones. He says, couldn't you find a photo of the item, find a mark in that photo, and then add a mark to the memorabilia later on. So basically, commit fraud. You you, you can, and people do do this. Uh, but again, to photo match it specifically, that jersey has to have all the elements that you're looking at. So there's a lot of things where you know you could disprove you could disprove why that's not a photo match based off. Let's just say I have a jersey of uh, you know. Uh, Tom Brady, okay, and that jersey, I decide, hey, I'm going to fake a hit mark, which 
again, faking a hit mark is tough. I could tell you, you know, like right now, like, you know, faking NFL wear and stuff like that is like, you know, it, people have tried it, but you know, you could kind of tell like when it's like soiled in your backyard, as opposed to like actually worn in a game and, you know, and everything has to line up. So like people don't realize a lot of these numbers, you know, are, you know, are in some cases a seamstress is putting these is customizing these jerseys it's not like this is just manufactured to where every jersey has the same manufacturer patches in the same spot so most of these jerseys their nameplates are all custom nameplates and that that placement is done by a seamstress so every nameplate is different so you could pretty much pinpoint everything within a jersey to, to, to pretty much find it. And also a photo match is also subjective as well as a card grade, like, you know, similar to a card grade. I, I could look at a PSA 10 and tell you 10 reasons why it's not a PSA 10, you know, and, you know, or tell you 10 reasons why it's a PSA 10. In the same light that I could look at a photo match that somebody is claiming to be a photo match and say, I don't necessarily agree, or I think maybe it's a photo match, but I don't think there's enough evidence to jump to the conclusion that that is a photo match. So, you know, that's why you have style matches or that's why you say, oh, it's potentially a partial photo match as opposed to being a full photo match. Awesome. Okay, great answer to that. The great context. Appreciate it. And great uh, comment by Albert Jones. Uh, we're going to go to Skeppy's question here. He says, I can't wait to get Nick's thoughts on game used versus player worn memorabilia cards. Side question. Do you think the hobby really understands the difference and significance between the two? I'll put it to you, Nick. Um, I mean, I look, I'm all about game use. I think, you know, I think the companies are getting away with a, a lot by putting, uh, you know, player worn stuff or even stuff now where they're not even disclosing what you're getting as a patch. So they just say this, this is, this is a patch, you know, it's not even related to the player itself. So I, I do think that's a problem within the hobby. And I do think the hobby puts too much weight on stuff that's player worn just because it comes out of a specific product so you know if you're getting a national treasures you know rpa per se that is specifically saying player worn on it to me i just really don't see the allure of like how you're comparing a patch like or even a logo man for that matter how you're comparing a logo man that probably came out of you know in some cases a retail jersey or just a game issue jersey you know a spare jersey where you know in some cases you're getting products you know you know it, along the same lines of high end like flawless that's saying specifically that this item is game worn. So I, I really do think that there's a huge discrepancy in value there where, you know, collectors don't really, you know, aren't reading in between the lines. They may not care. And I, I think that's, you know, I think down the road, I think that's going to bite some people. I really do think that. I, I, I think that, you know, as time goes by, I think there, people are going to place more value in, in, in what the card actually says on the back as opposed to, uh, you know, just buying because historically speaking, you know, the, the, the product sells well. Like, you know, if you, if, if, if you think about all this stuff too, it's like National Treasures, okay? Panini got the license in 2009. That wasn't that long ago. It's not like, like history, oh, it's a, you know, it's like a 10-year span of history. It's not like history can't change 10 years from now. And I, I do think people have already gravitated towards you know, the, the flawless is, you know, you know, and, and the higher end products that are, you know, telling you, Hey, this is actually game worn. I think you're a hundred percent correct. I personally, I, I believe that the hobby will eventually put significant premiums on pieces that are game used versus just, just player worn makes a lot of sense to me. 
Um, okay, I want to uh, right here. Thank you, T Dot. Appreciate that very much, and welcome to the show. Uh, TB12 says player worn patches are garbage. To me, they're not garbage. They're just a design element, just like anything else on a card might be. Just I'm not I'm not saying that they that they are a fair replacement for a or substitute for a game worn piece of jersey. To me, they're just something different. They're just a design element. The problem I think that most people have is that they think that people can be com- uh, confused or tricked into believing that it is game worn. So it's always important to read the back of the card for sure. Game Time Gallery says, is there a market leader for photo matching services like there is for grading? Now, I've heard of a few resolution photo matching, I think, is one of them. Are there yeah. a handful of these guys, Nick, or just uh, just a couple? Yeah, there's just a couple right now. There's, uh, you know, a couple popping up, you know, that, you know, certain companies use like Sotheby's has their, you know, preferred that does, you know, maybe, you know, there's companies that like Resolution will do, you know, everything for the jersey. There's another company owned by David Randolph um, and, and his company also does along the same lines as Resolution does. And there's other companies that will, you know, maybe are catered to, you know, their specialty is maybe photo matching a sneaker or something like that. So there are those companies popping up. You know, I'd say Resolution is probably the best when it comes to uh, your, your jerseys. Um, and also the bigger companies like Migray will, you know, since they have access to, uh, you know, and they have the rights to MBA images, um, they charge a lot, but they do, you know, do a service to where you could potentially send in your item to try to get the photo match. Yeah. Okay. Good stuff. Good stuff. Uh, thanks, Troy. Two one flames. Good to know. That's good for for me and my team. Birds on the bat. Julian says to me, player worn are passable, just not ideal. What Panini is doing now with the with the in quotes this piece of memorabilia isn't associated with any player or event is the unacceptable one. and to me that's just a it's a design element you know they're just being honest the fact that listen we're not trying to tell you this was used in a game it's just made to make the card look nicer so um i don't consider that unacceptable i think it's acceptable but again and i do like that they're that clear on the back that it was not associated with anything <laughs> But at the same time, I, I do see both sides. But I think it's again, if, once you once you kind of just figure, ah, it's a design element. Okay, fair enough. Move on. Move on. Um, let's see. Junk. Here's a fun question: Would you rather have a game worn patch, a game worn patch, or a sticker auto? Yeah, game worn with a sticker or hard signed with a with a uh, hard signed with a with a uh, a fake, I guess. Game worn with a stick or hard time. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that, that that's that's a tough one. It really just depends on on the era of the card. I mean, I don't necessarily rule sticker autos out just because they're sticker autos. I mean, I you know, I think there's a lot of nuance to sticker autos. I think like if the stick if if the autograph is out of the sticker, I don't really want the card. But like if it's dead center on the sticker, I don't really mind the card. Like, you know, and, and also with patches, there's you know there was a lot of shady stuff, you know, early on with patches that people have, you know, have now been, you know, there's facts that people have swapped out patches. So, you know, that's a little bit what kind of scares me with the game worn patch aspect is just, you know, just be wary. If it's a really nice patch, just like, you know, try to do the research. Like sometimes, you know, you could find that card, you know, or you could, you know, even if it's a 
super rare card like there's you know beckett magazines and stuff like that that publish some of these cards where you have the original pictures to some of these rare patches and stuff like that so i i do some digging you know always stay on top of things always stay on top of the forms you know um just because one person says it's fake doesn't mean that it's all it's it's fake but you know if you know if there's evidence presented that it's fake it's likely fake you know <laughs> you be the judge there yeah yeah uh albert says sticker at least the person touched it so yeah with the sticker auto you're getting a real autograph and you're getting a real piece of memorabilia <laughs> with the on-card autograph and the the player worn or not associated you're getting really uh maybe the player touched it still but didn't play with it so it's definitely definitely a bit different albert says i'm too nice i don't think i'm being too nice albert when it comes <laughs> to what i'm referring to as the design element i think i'm just i'm just being realistic and it's just logical really i mean to me it, it's it's just it is what it is right if you just yeah. understand what we have and you realize that there uh, the other option was no patch it's not like the other option was a game use patch the other option was was no patch no no design element so anyway let's keep on let's keep on going what birds on the bat says i hear you as a design element it's 100 fine for me it's more so i just find it unacceptable to put patches of that ilk in high cost important products like nt the customer deserves better yeah i can see that now we're talking about really the value proposition and so i think that there's definitely merit to, to it in that context and uh albert uh game warren thought it said event warren i could take game warren over a sticker for sure tampa says it's unacceptable if a, if it's a veterans card to me to not be game worn or at a bare minimum player worn so yeah, the whole thing about unassociated is uh, again, it's the same thing then as just a manufactured patch. It has a design that is a proprietary to the card company even at that point. So and all Valley puts it all in perspective and says the other option, everybody is vintage. <laughs> well said, all Valley brings us right back to home there. All right, the <laughs> Tony comments on your clear glasses, uh, Nick. They are fire. They are fire. Junk Wax says, thanks, Nick. Good point regarding the patch swapping in cards. Sneaky, unfortunate problem. Yes, and has been around for over 15 years as an issue in our hobby. Okay, good stuff on the memorabilia side. We've, we've hit it all. Let's now talk about tickets. Tickets are something that I've been talking about a lot lately because I do Collectible Live, and Collectible has offered some tickets on their platform, and we've had on some ticket collectors. So I've been talking about tickets for the last few weeks. And I find myself even doing conducting the odd eBay search now. You you like tickets yourself, correct? Yeah, I, I absolutely love them. Yeah, so so what do you like about them? So I mean, I think it's very along the same lines of a card. You have standardization, which is you know a key point. So you know PSA is, is you know grading them, which is great. Uh, but I think something that a card doesn't really provide is uh, you know a direct you know. A, the cards don't provide, uh, you know, uh, a relation to a direct moment in time. So like Jordan's flu game, there's not a car that, you know, there's cards produced during that year during, you know, his, you know, first, you know, MVP season or whatever it is, but there's not something from a specific game, like, you know, that, that, that reflects in a car. So I, I think that's what I like about the tickets. It, it, it reflects a direct moment in time. And, you know, it, to me, they're, they're very cool. I think, you know, when you think of a player, you generally think of that player in a certain moment in time. Like, you know, for me, it's like if I think of LeBron, like I think of, you know, I think of him back when he was, you know, 
on the heat and that historic moment where, you know, D Wade lobs it up to him and it's like, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's the classic pose. So, you know, you have just such, you know, great moments to kind of remember a player by. And I think that's what a ticket provides me in the same light that a photo provides me. It's just a direct relation to a moment. You know, a photo provides me with a more visual appealing, you know, a visual aspect to it in a similar form as a card, but it's a lot more in, in most cases that like you see behind me, it's oversized where a card is, I mean, where a ticket is, you know, is in some cases could be as small as a, you know, as a card slab. So, you know, those are the type of things that, you know, attract collectors, you know, they don't, I mean, some collectors don't like the aesthetic of having a bunch of bulky slabs, they rather, you know, a, you know, a concise form. So there's different investors, there's different, you know, there's different, uh, you know, type of uh, perspectives of why people collect tickets. That's kind of mine is just it reflects a moment. And I think, you know, no other a card really can't provide me with a specific moment. There are very few can. James makes the same point. James Rutita says uh, tickets are moments. To me, what I like about tickets is that they were they were at the game, you know. And whether you whether it's your own personal ticket, which adds that that extra level of sort of intimacy with the with the event, which is wonderful. But to the extent that, it, that you're buying it on the secondary market that ticket was at the game whereas the cards were not at the game unless you took a card to a game right so i think that that that's a pretty cool um added added layer and then the other thing is the 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 natural scarcity the organic rarity and scarcity of these tickets i mean you know we've all been going to events our whole lives and you know some people kept their tickets i kept some of mine some people just threw them out. You know, how many times have you walked through a baseball stadium, a hockey arena, whatever event, and you're walking on ticket stubs because people get in and they just drop them on the ground. No, no, no respect. They just drop them on it. How many times have you done that and walked over them? So I think you, the added, added level there is the, is the organic rarity. Go ahead. Jeremy, I don't, I don't walk over those tickets. I, I pick them up, you know, that's, yeah. that's, that's what I do. There's plenty of times where like people don't understand, you know, the first game of the season or something like that, that you're at a game and you're, you know, you're at a, you know, player's first game and, you know, people just drop the ticket or the program on the floor and you're just like, they're picking it up. Like I've literally been in instances where, you know, like for instance, uh, when I was in Dallas, um, you know, uh, when I was working for Heritage, I lived in Dallas for five years and uh, Connor McDavid scored his first goal in Dallas and he scored his, he, he, he achieved his first hat trick in Dallas as well. Um, he, so um, I was at both games and I remember him scoring the first goal and I remember having, he, I, I had tickets to, you know, I had my own tickets to that game. And I also had, I had gotten from the ushers, I had gotten like 11 programs. Well, I went and I tried getting, I found a box on the floor that had, you know, over a hundred programs in it. And I literally was on the verge of walking out of the arena. Like I was on the phone with my wife, like, Hey, I am getting out of this. I'm, I'm taking home a hundred programs and this is going to be a great day. And the usher stopped me. And he's like, you can't take that. We're going to put these back in the, you know, in the, in the, I guess they had a program like archive or whatever. And I was like, but, you know, I, I want them, you know, and like they're historical moments to me. Um, so, you know, there's there's people that think that's just, you know, paper trash. And, you know, I, I, I and now, uh, unfortunately, you know, most most events are now digital. So I think there's a play there that's going to come where it's going to be more of an NFT formatting 
for the tickets to where you actually have something that you could keep a relic from that game. And I think maybe it could be valuable. You know, I'm more of a physical, you know, I'm more of a physical asset type of guy, but I don't knock something that, you know, is, you know, was used to get into a game like, you know, and, and convert it into an NFT. So, yeah. you know, that, that I, I like it. Good. Uh, Jim says Pele rookie card just sold for three for 1.3 million. What do you think would be the first sports ticket to reach a million dollars? Uh, probably a debut of one of the goats. I mean, the Jordan ticket you, you, that's up at, at Heritage right now, I think is, uh, you know, over $300,000 right now. So um, something like that would probably be the first million dollar ticket. Um, tickets are tough because, you know, as, as you've mentioned, Jeremy, like, you know, let's just say the attendance was 10,000. Well, not everybody kept those tickets. So it's not like, you know, Tops, which is issue, issuing 10,000 cards, and those are going straight to collectors' hands, and then the collectors are keeping them, you know, or storing them, you know, for over a period of time. Most of these, you know, most of these tickets were used to get into in, into the game and thrown away right when they got into the gate or, you know, thrown away right after the event. Um, or, you know, even if they kept it, maybe, you know, you misplaced that box. You know, there's a lot of things that could have happened over that course of time that, you know, that's why the populations are so low. Like a Jordan debut ticket, there's only 20 and there was only 13,000 people at the event. You'd figure now with the headlines, let's just say, let's just say this headline, it sells for what it sells for. Let's just say it sells for 300,000. You know, I really don't see even with it making the headline and it getting traction on ESPN that the population even, you know, adds five to 10 more to the population. And even if it does add five or 10 more, there's, you know, there's well over hundreds of collectors that want that ticket right now. Like, you know, even most people that don't collect tickets will gravitate toward buying that, that item. I think most people would say, man, that's a cool item to own. It's a piece of history. Um, and there's not going to be that many of them because even if the population, what really let, let's just use, you know, like, like a Luca base prism is a population of a PSA 10 of like over like 20,000 right now. Like there's no chance, like even if everybody theoretically kept their ticket, you know, which we all know that's not the case. Um, you know, the populations of tickets in most cases for most events will, won't get up over a hundred just because yeah. now we've shifted to digital tickets. Um, the only ones that you really see get over 100 are, you know, the Super Bowls, the World Series, and the more modern era Super Bowls and World Series where people actually kept those tickets because they were laminated, they were more ornate, they, they weren't paper tickets, they were meant to be kept, and people, like, of course, like, you remember, hey, I went to this Super Bowl, and you, you kept that ticket, but if you went to a random game, uh, you know, during the season that just so happened to be a player's debut, or just so happened to be, like, you know, like, you know, how much... Like, there's only two known of this ticket. This is Will Chamberlain's the only time he ever got a, a double, triple, double. So for those of you that don't know what a double, triple, double is, he got 20, 20, 20 in, in uh, you know, in each statistic. He got at least 20 in each statistical category. So it, it's pretty remarkable. And that had only been done uh, by him until Russell Westbrook did it a couple years ago. So um, it's pretty crazy that in, a, you know, a 50-year span, only two players in NBA yeah. history have ever done that. And there's only two examples of this ticket. So how many more could, you know, potentially be found in a box? Like not many. So those are the type of things that, you know, I tell people like, just because, you know, the narrative right now with tickets is that they've increased so much in, in, uh, you know, in value and that, you know, there's certain accounts pumping tickets. Well, 
you know, they, they, yeah, there's definitely people that pump cards in the same fashion that share the cards on their Instagram, you know, to try to lure or entice more people to get, um, you know, to get involved or to try to purchase one. But at the same rate, you know, you have to look at it from, you know, the point of view of how many more of these could get into PSA holders and, you know, how many more exist out there. And for the, to answer, I mean, most of these populations won't increase, I, I'd say, not that drastically. If they, if they double, I don't really think it impacts the market in the slightest. Okay, no, good stuff there. And uh, you, when you mentioned uh, there's, there are accounts on Instagram sort of pumping tickets, what I was thinking, what, what went through my head was, it's like any time somebody on Instagram gets excited about something, they, are, they get accused of pumping it, it seems. Is it is, and this is a this is a question for another time. Maybe I'll talk about it on after hours later tonight. But you know, at what point is is it just celebrating your celebrating your item versus versus pumping your item? In any event, in any event, we'll save that. That's not for right now. I want to go to Jeff Hart's question here for you, Nick. He says, "How much does the value differ if it is a stub versus the full ticket in general? Is it really dependent on the event or how rare it is?" So start with the. I mean, I think I think the latter question there is it's more dependent on the event than how rare the ticket is. I think really you want it's like it's like saying, you know, is it more dependent on who the player is or how many cards there are? Sort of. That's how I'm interpreting that. So let's just focus on the first question here. Nick, how much does the value differ if it is a stub versus a full ticket in general? So in some cases, only stubs exist. So there there's. In some cases, for some events, you're not going to get a full ticket because in order to get into the event, they had to rip the bottom of it like this one. But in some cases, you know, the full ticket does exist. And most of the time for, you know, very, um, very historic events like Wilt's 100 point game or something like that, there's one full ticket in existence. That is the grail. It's just like the Jordan debut. There's only one full ticket, one full unused ticket in existence. And that's why it's garnering the price that it has. Even if a second or third one were to appear in the population, it's very similar to like a, a card that has a pop one population. Let's just say the the you know the the one that comes to mind is is the '79 Opichi Gretzky, which had a population of one you know a couple of years ago, and then a second one you know uh, you know came came into the population. So. Did, did that really affect the value? No, it didn't. I mean, um, and most of the time, you know, it, it's happened. It's happened in a couple cards. Like '69 Alcindor is another example of a card that was a pop one PSA 10 uh, that became a pop two. When the pop two sold, it literally sold for what the what what, what the pop one had originally sold for. So um, pretty much, it, it really depends on you know. It's, it comes back to supply and demand. Like you know it. So, you know, if demand's out there, the 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 item's going to sell for what it's going to sell for. But generally, full tickets are more coveted, you know, to collectors. Uh, but in some cases, you have to go with the stub just because it's what's available. In some cases, um, if the ticket is rare enough, I mean, that's the only time that you're going to have, you know, if there's only three known right now, let's just say the popu population doubles to or triples to getting close to 10. Well, there's only 10 people in the world that could own that item. So that's the way you got to look at it. So, you know, it's, 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 it's very rarity. similar to those. It's rarity. It's, yeah. What about this? What about a ticket that wasn't used, that wasn't taken to the game um, versus one that was, is there any, is there any uh, meaning, meaningfulness to that? 
I, I don't think so. I think most people are, you know, especially coming in from the card world are going to look at that unused to like, you know, the same fashion as you look as you look at other collectibles, like let's just say an unused iPhone compared to a used iPhone, like an original iPhone one compared like how many of these, you know, remain, you know, that are in the original box that were, you know, it's like similar to the video game dilemma, like how many of these, you know, yeah, everybody had this game, but how many kept it sealed? So uh, I think it comes back to that dilemma where it's like, I think the pool ticket and unused ticket will always be more coveted because A, it's going to, you know, reflect better condition wise. It's just going to look more aesthetically pleasing and the population is going to reflect that. So that, that that's kind of my take on it. Right on. Troy says, some of my Red Wings Stanley Cup tickets are a moment in time and some have mustard stains. I'm sure there's some, they am sure some smell like beer as well. <laughs> Bent Cardboard says, can tickets be considered SP as they're limited to the venue attendance? They're limited to the venue attendance and nowadays hard tickets printed versus electronic tickets. So, I mean, I think are t- tickets overall just becoming um, obsolete? And, and then, but, but also, I mean, there are commemorative tickets, you know, some events while they are being, well, while tickets are being generated electronically, they are, there is still sometimes the option to print or the option to get them from the box office. Um, Is there a difference between like a season ticket ticket, which may be more uh, nicer, more design, more images on it versus like a ticket master ticket, which one is more desirable generally speaking, or is that still kind of unknown and determined collector by collector? No, I mean, I I definitely think the season ticket is more coveted. It's always more aesthetically pleasing than the box office ticket. I mean, to be honest with you, in terms of box office tickets, uh, my opinion is like PSA just started grading these about like two years ago. So before that, they wouldn't grade the Ticketmaster tickets. Um, So it's something like relatively new. Um, I, you know, value the season ticket, you know, more a lot more heavily than than I do just because you know if you've been collecting tickets for you know like 10 years you know you're kind of like you 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 never saw a value in having the Ticketmaster ticket because you know like PSA wouldn't grade them now that they're grading them you know now there's of course more added value you know and not to say that some of those aren't rare but generally those are in better condition for the most part because you know you probably got it in some cases you know halfway through the game or you got it you know or like there was there's a lot more that could go wrong with the season ticket because like in some cases a lot of these tickets came in sheets so you had to rip it out of the sheet you know then you have to go to the game and then like especially if it's like a bigger ticket let's just say like you know like you know uh i mean this is a bigger ticket like the slabs get get bigger but like you know just imagine you know taking this to a game like you know what what were the odds of this you know not getting folded up so like th- those are the things that you got to think about with, with tickets like you know some tickets are bigger than others some tickets are massive and like meant to be worn meant to be worn around your neck you know so like you know there's there's various different things i think the bigger tickets are you know generally more aesthetically pleasing but they're generally in worse condition just because like they yeah. they generally went in your pocket or they went somewhere so they got folded up or they got mustard on them Exactly. Oh, got yeah. Skeppy says there have been cards that actually contain a piece of a ticket. I think it's pretty cool to have it in a card size package with content to tell the story. I agree. I know Upper Deck's done some of that in the cup, and I know we've seen it elsewhere as well. Albert Jones says, I got my GSP ticket, my George St. Pierre 
went uh, to the first UFC in Canada when he whipped Sarah's butt and met GSP. Albert Jones, I believe I was at that same event in Toronto. I think it was like uh, UFC 94, 96, something like that. Maybe one. It was a long time ago. I believe I was at I was at that uh, event as well. Uh, Jim Hansen, uh, welcome to the show. Jim says, hello, guys. What about tickets printed that were never used? For example, World Series tickets during the 81 baseball strike but say, but this, but said team never made it. Ticket like the, the event never yeah. happened. Is there any? That's like an oddball sort of thing to me. Is there any demand for that sort of thing? It's called a phantom ticket for an event that never occurred or for your team that never made the World Series that year. Um, generally, there's you know very limited value. It's you know gen, like there's still a market for it, but it's like you know it's very minimal. Like most of those phantom tickets sell for like. 10, 20 bucks, you know, just because it's, you know, it was, it, it's a cool relic or something like that. And they were still issued, technically issued tickets, but they were issued to like every team. So even if you were like, let's just say a Dolphins fan for, you know, or Marlins, you know, well, the Marlins are relatively new, but like, let's just use the Pirates. All the Pirates in some cases, like if they were really good, you know, they were expected to make the, you know, they were expected to make their, you know, they were expected to make the world series. So they would issue the world series tickets to all the season ticket holders in advance. So you get the full season ticket book with your playoff book or even with your full season ticket. So um, cool, but you know, not necessarily value. I don't think it'll be, those will be super valuable. They exist in, in, in very high quantities as well. Fair enough. Okay. TDOT says like paper money, paper tickets are dying out then paper paper in general. All right. Albert Jones, uh, GSP was 08 in Montreal. So I wasn't his first one. I was at an event in uh, Toronto within a few years uh, from 08. I just don't remember exactly when it was. All right, Nick, let's switch it up. And now let's move from tickets onto photos of which you have about 15 or so uh, behind you. It looks like I see, mm -hmm. a, I see a Gretzky up at the top left there. looks like, looks like we can see, is that some Jack Nicholas perhaps? Uh, yeah. Tiger. Arnie, Jordan, Kareem. Um, yeah, they, there's just, uh, you know, uh, a lot of variety on my wall, um, you know, in terms of like what really draws me to photos, of course, is imagery. I mean, imagery is, is, is king. I mean, it's, it's the same as card, you know, certain aesthetics of cards, like, like what, when they use such an iconic image, like, uh, you know, let's just say uh, this past, uh, prism, this past LeBron prism, the, the Kobe tribute uh, LeBron, something like that is just iconic imagery that is selling that card. Um, you know, if it were any other image, that card would not sell for what it, what, what it sold, what it sells for. Like, you know, to me, like, you know, Topps Chrome is a perfect example. Like LeBron Chalk Toss Topps Chrome is a perfect example where imagery is selling that card, not so much the, you know, the rarity in some cases. It's just, you know, it, it, it that that's what a photo provides me. So, you know, and, and a photo could, you know, actually reflect, you know, a card. So, you know, so, and, and these photos are much more rare than the card itself. So this is, this is Raymond Brown, his only card. So this is, uh, you know, a Cuban issue. Um, and Ray, Raymond Brown is a hall of famer. Um, this was used for the 4546, um, uh, uh, 4546 Caramelos Deportivo set. Um, and, uh, yeah, so he was a Negro league player, hall of famer. Um, and you have like, you know, st stuff that you could relate even to, you know, the MLB players. So like 
the original photo used for the 52 Tops Man or the 51 Bowman. Um, those exist, and you know, I mean, they they they're well into the six figures now. And I think you know, if one of those comes to auction now, I think it could potentially hit seven figures just based off you know the demand for some of these photos. So th those are the type of things that I look for in photography. I love you know stuff that you could relate back to cards. Uh, but not always. I think there's, you know, I, I look for aesthetic too. I look for uh, who the photographer was is a big thing. If the photographer was, you know, famous, like the shot, you know, uh, on right behind me right here, um, that photographer, his name is Neil Leifer. Um, and he was a very famous photographer. He still sells prints for, you know, for thousands of dollars on his on his website and he sells them um uh but he was a photographer and that that specific image was used for the cover of sports illustrated so it's pretty cool getting that photo next to the actual sports illustrated that it was used for the cover so stuff like that is is where you know i i that i love and that i look for and there's very famous sports photographers if you do get into photography there are you know i'd say like five names that are you know you know keen to photography it's you know um it just really depends on what era you're talking if it's baseball or if it's you know or if it's more modern age basketball or football um and then you know you could kind of have fun with with photography too you don't have to stick into the bubble of uh just uh sports so you know for me um you know i'm big on art so you know this is ansel adams i think most people you know, within, um, you know, any sector know who Ansel Adams is because he had the first uh, six-figure sale within the photography realm, and he's one of the most famous landscape photographers um, in the world. So to get a type one photo of Ansel Adams to me is more so art, and I consider all these pieces art um, than, than a card itself where, you know, people will say, hey, a card's art, but it's more, a card is more mass-produced art. And then, you know, you can have fun with it. Like, I, I, I have fun where I just, like, you know, like I, I, I like Willy Wonka. So Gene, Gene Wilder, you know, and Willy Wonka, I think is just a, a great shot. You know, there's there's a couple more where I'm more inclined to to history where I I uh, I'm drawn to the shot. Let me get one more here. This one this one's cool. This is uh this was Bonnie and Clyde's uh car. Um so it's from uh nineteen thirty four and it was it was the car, uh, the, the death car where Bonnie and Clyde uh, died. So this is the original photo to that. This was a uh, photo published, uh, you know, in the Associated Press. And it's uh, it, it's pretty cool. I mean, it tells a story, you know, and it, and, and it has and, and, and it reflects, you know, a point in time, you know, a historical point in time. So you have those moments where you have now photos from like Martin Luther King or some of those historic figures bringing huge numbers. I think it was a Martin Luther King photo that brought like, you know, over $20,000. So there's, there's big sales occurring, not just in the sports realm, but in the historical realm. And these photos are available. So if you go on eBay and you're willing to spend the time, you know, there's a little bit of a nuance to understanding what a type photo is, because there's, you know, four different types. So type one is off the original negative uh, and printed within a two year span of that photo being taken. Type two is off the original negative, but printed two years after the photo was originally taken. Type three is off a duplicate negative, but within within a two year span of the photo being taken. And type four is more of a like a mod, uh, what I consider a more modern era print. It's off a duplicate negative and past 
two years after the photo was taken. So um, there's a little bit of nuance to understanding photography, which, you know, I think that's a roadblock for most collectors um, and even most investors that, you know, hey, you know, um, a person can't really, you know, doesn't really understand what a type one is. And I could see that. I could see why certain collectors won't gravitate to, toward photography. But I think once you understand, I'm always somebody that really dives deep into whatever I invest in. So, you know, I research and I spend time to like really understand, hey, here are the nuances. And even myself, like, you know, I could probably get, you know, now with the type system, I could probably, you know, definitively get to a 90 percent, 95 success rate to what I understand what I'm buying. But even then, you know, like anybody, even if you're a card guy, you may make a mistake every now and again and buy something that you didn't mean to buy or buy something, you know, that you, you thought it was X and it ended up being Y. So I think that's the little nuance with photography that kind of roadblocks it. But the collector base is very strong. And it's, you know, it's if you see the prices, you know, there's not that many people covering photography in terms of like, you know, like major headlines happening in photography. But if you see the auction sale prices, you're kind of like, well, the, the core collectors do care about this. And that's what you want to see in these markets. There's, you know, there's there are big upticks that have happened within the market, but it's not substantial. And, and these these photos have always been there's always been five figure sales that have occurred even into the 90s of some of these photos so that's what's good to see and i think uh with uh you know more fine art establishments like sotheby's and christie's offering original photography sales um this is a perfect segue into these because these are in the same light as them selling original photography this is the same exact thing that they're selling it's just more catered toward let's just say a specific demographic or a specific genre and sport yeah, I, I love all the nuance that comes along with with uh, collecting photos and that, you know, if somebody wants to get into it, similar to tickets, you need to educate yourself and understand all of these nuances between and, and I thank you for the explanation between the type one, two, three and four. I think that's really helpful. Uh, it did sort of preempt Jeff Hart's question here where he asked how many type one photos exist when they are first made before it becomes a type two. And really that that question that that begs the question what is a type one and what is a type two and from your explanation it's not it, it has nothing to do with how many photos are made from it it's the time from the original negative that that counts correct right. yeah that, that, that yeah. that's yeah yeah okay let's keep on going some more comments about tickets that have come in troy says nick likes images imagery and goats beauty photos very nice troy T-Dot says, that's what I love about the Ken Dryden rookie, the first card with a goalie in a mask. Very cool. Game Time Gallery says, is it true that the original photo used for the 86 Fleer Jordan has never surfaced? Can you confirm or, or verify that or it's deny it? Cor correct. It's, it's never surfaced. And uh, I mean, there's people that have spent, I mean, more hours in a day that you could think of, you know, trying to find that photo. And, you know, to everyone's knowledge, uh, we don't think it uh, type one we don't think it exists i mean just based off uh ample research i mean there's guys that uh have spent much more time researching and went down a rabbit hole of making so many phone call phone calls that i'm sure it got old uh to some of these old time photographers that 
Um, but if that photo were to ever surface, I mean, you definitely uh, hear about it, read about it, and it definitely be seven figures in my opinion. That, well, there you go. Maybe that'll be the first million dollar photo if and when it actually does surface. Philly Joe says, in short, who is the photo owner? I mean, can you can you? Uh, I, I think there's got to be layers to this, right? The original negative might be owned by one person. The photo, uh, you, the photos behind you are owned by you. Is that right? Correct. Yeah, the the photos are owned by me. So you know, these are all printed, you know, photos, you know, off the original negative. But I guess the, I guess the question. Sorry, Nick. I think the question, like, are you then able to take these photos and like lend them to to a newspaper to to print? Uh, technically, no. So, I mean, the, the negative is where the rights are, in my opinion. So the negative is what is used to produce these photos. So if you have the original negative, you could do as you please. If you want to use that, if you want to use that negative and print potentially, if you have the original negative, you could theoretically print type two photos. Um, but, you know, generally, again, you're going to, it's like similar to printing a card, right? If you print, you know, a thousand a thousand type two photos and everybody has a type two of that image it's not worth anything because you know supply and demand isn't going to be there a, a, a type one is just uh you know is is a lot more valuable because it's within a certain time frame so you know based off the stampings on the back of this photo when exactly it was printed or or what, what era the paper was so you could date some of this paper so you know there's a full paper art you know uh, paper guide pretty much so you know nuances to like kodak paper to like what era you know this kodak paper was used from the, you know 1972 to 1976 and it's it's a specific labeled paper that you could date so there's very nuanced things to photos uh but the original owner is the person that took the shot and still owns the negative so if you were the original photographer i don't necessarily think that you have you're entitled to that if you sold the negative because the negative is 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 what, what you have so even if you have a digital version you know should you get paid on it for being the photographer yes but you know if it's printed if it's i, I think they should get paid within the digital formatting so if it's used within digital content um, the, the original photographer should get paid, but if it's uh, actual printed, um, the, then the owner of the original negative should get compensated. Okay. Thank you for that. Philly Joe, there you go. Michael Ham, good evening to you. He goes on to ask, what about vintage slides? Is there any, is there a market for vintage slides? Is it, is it a subset of the whole photo collecting community or where does that fall? Yeah, it's, it's not as big for sure. Uh, vintage slides, um, you know, they, they're not aesthetically pleasing to look at. They're generally re relatively small. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a tougher market. Like you could still find Jordan original uh, slides that sell for 50 to 100 bucks. So, you know, there is a market for them. There are people buying them. Um, it, they're cool, but I, I just don't think they're aesthetically pleasing. And I, you know, they... Maybe, you know, if they be, you know, if they came in a PSA holder, you know, maybe there, there be more, you know, allure to them. Uh, but for right now, I, I, I don't see that much playing. All right. Okay, good. Back to who owns it. Uh, CM makes the, the very, what, what I'm sure is a very <laughs> accurate comment that copyright law is complicated. <laughs> Triple V says, I like to collect pre-war cabinet cards and Gerard Richter original photos and limited prints, some of my favorites to display. And I think that's a big piece is display. I mean, we want to enjoy what we what we have for sure, for sure. 
And a Facebook user, uh, if you're on Facebook watching and your name doesn't come up, you can go to the top of the post. There will be a link there to a StreamYard site. Click the big blue button and it will share your name. So anonymous Facebook user says, I have many negatives. Can someone take a negative and cut it into more pics and subsequent negatives? I'm not sure about that, but I think that's a little bit beyond, I feel yeah. like it's a little bit beyond the scope of the discussion. Um, so we will, we will just move on to, let's actually, we're going to move on to our next topic. I'm seeing a, a few more comments come in here. Um, Dot says the original photographer picks may be owned by the business they work for. Yeah. Lots of, lots of nuance there. Let's move on. I want to, I want to, we had a couple of other topics we were going to discuss. One of them was sort of dealing in the lower tier segments of the hobby. And uh, in a previous discussion, you had mentioned to me something about diamonds in the rough. And I had mentioned to you that, you know, there's, there's the narrative in the hobby that people have been priced out. I'm not saying it isn't true. Many people have been priced out of the hobby. My retort is always, there's always, there's always cards you can collect and afford. Just go to ComC. You can buy several cards for nine cents if you want. Of course, you have to want them too. But all that said, what can you just sort of elaborate on what you meant by sort of diamonds in the rough? I think gravitating towards stuff that people aren't looking at or just gravitating toward understanding what actual rarity is. I think most people wait for, you know, somebody to post on, you know, social media or, you know, just social media in general. Uh, just because it's such a prevalent is so prevalent in our hobby most people wait for you know somebody to tell them kind of what to buy instead of taking the initiative and taking chances on what to buy based off your knowledge and and understanding like you know a checklist is available to everyone um you know in some cases the checklist even if it's not available um you know you could do some digging yourself i mean there's some things that the checklist tells me um, and there's other things that the checklist does not tell me that you know are are very prevalent that I need to research. Like sometimes the packaging, the original packaging of of the box itself, you know, when you, for for hobby boxes, you know, it, the the it'll tell you the pack odds. Pack odds are huge to me, and I I love digging deep into pack odds, and those may not be you know accessible in some cases or easily accessible to where you have to do a little bit more work to find hey what was the pack odds for this certain insert uh but once you you know do find those things it's very you know it to me it's very rewarding i think um you know i think finding you know those those cards that are like ten dollars or twenty bucks and then you know you get it graded and you know i, I find success in not posting most of the stuff that i'm trying to buy I find success in not posting it on Instagram or not posting it on, on, on any social media platform, not because I don't want to share it or not because I don't think it's cool, but I want to give myself kind of a, you know, a time frame of like, Hey, how long till this catches on? Cause I know, I, I think I know it'll catch on. And, you know, I think that's what, what makes it fun. I think before it was like, you know, for me, it was like when prospecting was cool, you know, before it became such a big business, um, you know, prospecting was fun because it was like finding those type of diamonds in the rough. It was finding a player that nobody cared about and kind of waiting, hey, I spotted that talent and he actually hit and, and now he's, you know, now he's a superstar. Um, I, I kind of like took that and kind of ran with it with, from a card perspective. Um, and I, I don't think that like, you know, I, I think I cheat myself if I say, hey, let me share this to all my followers on Instagram 
you know, and, and, you know, let them know about how rare this card is, you know, and, and there's instances that I do it. There's instances that I do get ahead of myself and I will post a card just because I think it's cool. And, you know, you know, generally it's, you know, it's something that, you know, may not be, you know, only a handful of people think, Oh man, that's really cool. But, you know, there's other times where I have, you know, that I sit on a card and people don't understand how you could take 20 or 30 bucks and in a year or two span, make it three or 4,000 and, uh, you know, and have some of the best returns on investments that you have. And that's what this hobby provides, which is absolutely amazing. If you do, if you do put in the time, if you do know what people want, if you do know what people are gravitate to, or just, you know, find your own path. I mean, even finding your, you know, finding your own path kind of generates, you know, you know, interest, you know, yeah. there's people that ran with, you know, new segments in the market like formula one or new segments in the market like soccer or stuff like that which is popping but the early adopters took a chance at the end of the day you have to take a chance to make the money at the end of the day uh, you know one guy didn't just wake up and say i'm you know I, i'm i'm rich off lewis hamilton cards he took a chance and said hey i'm willing to spend more than anyone on lewis hamilton cards and you know and here's my reason why and hopefully it catches on and you know those guys make money, and at the end of the day, that's that's you know part part of the hobby is collecting, and I'm a core collector. And you know some of these cards that I think are rare and cool never catch on, but some of them I use just as a gauge for personal, you know that they're pure investments. But you know I want to spend the 50 bucks to sell a card for 5,000. You know I like those returns. I I don't like to be out of pocket $10,000 to try to make 50,000. I'd rather be out of pocket 50 bucks to make 5,000. It's just a different way of playing the game. There's people that play. Yeah. I play in all sectors of the game. I'll play on the high end. I'll play on the low end. But low end and mid end, you know, in that, I, I find a sweet spot between 50 and $250. And I like to see, you know, huge upside and returns at that rate. And I, I, I just don't think that realm gets enough appreciation. These cards always have a certain starting point. Some cards start at as low as $5, you know. And they could end up being that $50,000 card. So I, you know, that's, that's, that's what's amazing about, you know, this hobby that I, that I love it so much. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I hear you. You know, you started off by talking about the checklist. The checklist is available to everybody. So yeah, you can take a chance on a player and hope that that player performs and goes up in value, or you can take a chance on a new sector, as you mentioned, whether it's, f1 or soccer or something but new i mean like new newly going mainstream i suppose or you can take a chance on a on a type of card from a certain era like 90s inserts is a great one you know um skeppy brings up the comedy says what's worse is people buy with hopes that a social media influencer will eventually pump it up so for me you know i've done that i've bought items because I felt that they had room to grow and I thought they were really cool. I wanted to add them to my collection. So I'm out there buying as much as I can, not making a, not going public about it because I don't want to drive up the cost on myself. And then it, it's not with a hope that a social media influencer will, will pump it up. It's, it's with the hope that the hobby will catch on and realize that, that, that these are cool and more people will want them and that will drive the values up. So it serves two purposes. One, I get to collect something I really like. And number two, it's going to appreciate in value, which I don't know anybody who's against that for what, for, for assets or collectibles that they own. So I think that, that it's interesting. It's not to me, it's not about a, a social media influencer pumping it. It's about the hobby celebrating it because 
it's cool. It's going on with tickets right now. You know, even we've talked about them a lot. More and more people are talking about tickets. I think tickets are cool now. I didn't care about them before. Now I think they're cool. Why? Because I've become informed. I've talked to more people. That's all it is. There's nothing nefarious about it. Uh, Troy says, not everyone here in here, not everyone here is here to make money. I'm a collector. Fair enough. I think, I think we all have, if you're watching this show, you have some collector in you, but none of, like I just said, no one's going to be upset if what they own goes up in value. You know, you only, you're only going to make the money if you sell it anyway. So good stuff. Interesting topics there. Interesting top. And Skeppy says, sounds like Nick likes to zag instead of zig. I like that. Yeah, stay ahead of the curve to the degree that you can, for sure. Okay, good stuff. That that was a well done, Nick. I thank you for, for your insights. Really, really interesting and, and a good topic. Let's move on. We are, we are running short of time. Uh, there's two more things I want to cover for sure with you. The first one is fanatics and what you believe their next move will be, should be. I mean, we've obviously, obviously the fanatics getting the licenses has been done to death by hobby content creators. Fanatics acquiring tops a, a month ago, a month and a week ago has been covered to death by, uh, by us content creators, but that's okay. Let's, let's touch on it one more time here. And instead of talking about what they've already done, let's talk about what you think their next move is going to be. Personally, I think, I just think Upper Deck is up for grabs and I really, you know, I, I just think it's it's such a valuable brand to our hobby. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, maybe, you know, again, uh, you know, in Canada, it's a very valuable brand because it has hockey, you know, in the States, it may not be, you know, that appealing, but I, I think people forget just the core products that they have and the, the core licenses that they have. Um, which, you know, aside from hockey, I mean, they have, you know, Marvel, which to me is huge. Um, they have golf, which, you know, I, I, I enjoy golf. So, you know, not many people do, but, you know, again, I, I, they, they have good licenses that I think are, are, are useful. And I think, you know, in terms of fanatics wanting to dominate the space, which it seems like they do, it just seems like they just want to acquire every license. Um, it, it would be a good way to kind of diversify, you know, their, um, their entity. So, you know, they're still going to be operating under the top's name. So it's not like a, another acquisition within the sports card realm and operating still under the upper deck name. You know, it's still one parent company. So they're still going to be profiting if they do that. So I, I think that's, that's one segment of the market that I think that, you know, that, that they're going to, they're going to do, you know, I think they want to be the, the one-stop shop to where, you could buy, you could rip with them, you could grade with them, you could sell with them. And I don't know if that's a good or bad thing for the hobby, but, you know, it's it's something to where I think they're trying to create a lot more, you know, ease of transaction happening, you know, a more seamless transaction, which I think right now um, our hobby is kind of segmented. You know, the, the one thing about, you know, most people don't like NFTs within our physical asset space, but the one thing about an NFT that is very attractive is that it's one seamless transaction that, occur that occurs, you know, in a 24-7 marketplace. So, you know, and it transfers instantly to where, you know, we have, you know, things that kind of resemble it and things that are popping up that resemble it, but, you know, it, there's not a whole lot of ease. You know, you get a card in that's raw, you have to go send that into PS say you have to wait you have to you know so there's a lot of nuance to that and i think they they're trying to find a you know bridge the gap to where you know potentially digital 
meets physical in a certain way and, you know, creates a more seamless, more, you know, Amazon at your door the next day type of feel. And I know you also really like their EPAC platform and you feel, I, I believe you think that that is something that would be an attractive asset to be acquired by somebody like Fanatic. Now, all this to all this, we ha- I have to mention because Jason Mashera, who's the president of Upper Deck, was on the show with me a few months ago, and he was very, uh, very firm that Upper Deck is not for sale and will not be acquired by Fanatic. So that's fine. Things change. Money talks. Who knows, right? So you know whether or not I don't think you're saying that you that you think it's for sure going to happen. You're saying that you could see this making sense. And to what extent do you think the EPAC? platform that Upper Deck has, their proprietary trading platform and sales platform, to what extent do you think that would weigh in on Fanatic's uh, desire desire to acquire Upper Deck? I think it's huge just because it's, uh, I mean, I, I I used it a couple of years ago when it first came out, you know, uh, and I, I wasn't really drawn to, you know, I'm always a physical type of guy. I want to bust the packs in front of me, but um, with you know, getting into Marvel and stuff like that, I was on there and I was like, man, this is a great way to organize your collection. You have access to the physical cards. So whenever you've felt like you've completed, like I completed a, you know, a precious metal set, you know, on the, on the new X-Men metal. So, you know, when you complete something like that and you're ready to have it shipped to you, you could transfer it to your comp account or you could, you know, have it shipped to yourself. So it's very organized. You could do a lot of trading on the forum. So it's very like Instagram like to where you just like message somebody and be like, Hey, I have this card. Are you interested? Or somebody messages you. So it's very community oriented, which I think is very good. You know, it gets you, you know, meeting new people on a day to day doing transactions, very similar to like Instagram where you're, you know, following somebody, you know, you could, you, I could go on a, a certain guy's page and if he has all his, you know, items unlocked, I could go look at his portfolio of cards and you'd be amazed at the, you know, six figure collections that have been built, you know, and not just in hockey, which is, you know, prevalent, you know, very much on there, but just in Marvel. I mean, there was, there was the other day, there was over a hundred cases that moved within a 24 hour span of, uh, to sell out of uh, Marvel X-Men metal. So there's a lot of product moving on there. There's a lot of money moving in there. And uh, I think it's great. I just think, you know, for me to click a button, yeah, it's kind of like, you know, I think, you know, some people would compare it to the slot machine of like, you know, clicking a button and hoping that your digital slot machine pays, um, you know, in the same form, but you're at least getting something. You're at least getting something that's backed by a physical asset. Jeremy, I think you're muted. <laughs> Thank you for that. Yes, I was muted. Um, my I was bad. like, I was going crazy over here. <laughs> I've done that a couple of times before over the last uh, year or so. Um, Okay. No, I was just saying, thank you. Thank you for that explanation. Um, and, you know, I do think the EPAC platform is uh, is something that has value. It's, it's very slick and uh, no doubt that other card companies might like to emulate it or, or acquire it, including Fanatics and Tops. But as was mentioned, Jason Mashra has said uh, several times that Upper Deck is not for sale, so that might be all for naught. But the move seems to make sense from those of us looking in from the outside. So, okay. 
Good stuff. Um, I'm going to uh, bring up Troy's comment. Great insight you have shared tonight, Nick. Love your knowledge about photos. Very cool. That's very nice. <laughs> All valid. Yes, I wasn't. Uh, that was my fault. I had muted myself. And the Flames are up three to two. Thank you, Troy. Good to see. Good to see. Okay. So before we get on to our final topic, which is more about you, Nick, I'm going to just let everybody know after this show, I will be coming back on a new stream on the channel for after hours. Going to be going over some viewer comments that I had uh, taken from or really noticed from some of the videos over the last couple of weeks. Some really great comments. So just uh, some good discussion topics there among a few other topics. So be sure to check back in about 10 minutes after we end this show with Nick. I'll be back again on after hours on the same on this same YouTube channel. And also tomorrow after Super Bowl, I will be on Rolling with FD. That is this right here. This is his thumbnail for the show. He's having on several content creators after Super Bowl tomorrow night. So looking forward to that. He's got a, a couple of uh, waves of, of that happening. I'll be on with him at uh, 9.30 p.m. Eastern tomorrow night. And no collectible live tomorrow because I'm going to be watching the Super Bowl, as will many of you, I am sure. Okay, with that, ah, Jeremy Pringle, welcome to the show. Says, I have two tickets from Randy Johnson's perfect game. Keep them. That's real. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool for sure. <laughs> Jake Stowe, can you hear me now? Exactly, exactly. Never a proud moment when, when the host of the show mutes himself and forgets to unmute himself. Okay, Nick, you're doing some content creation of your own right now. For We've had streaming on the ticker tonight. Uh, we've had your two Instagram handles at nsapiro17 and also at hobbyquickhitters with underscores. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing for content. Talk about your your hobby quick hitters project and also the show that you do with Collectible called the Panel. Sure. So hobby quick hitters is just more of a passion project where I talk to collectors. It's very uh, short formatted. It's generally most of the episodes are within you know about. There's a cat. Um, uh, uh, generally, most of the episodes are about three to five minutes long, and I ask just you know, kind of you know, cool hobby questions. I just I just released Jeremy's episode tonight, so if you want to watch, uh, Jeremy was uh, on on my show. Uh, you know, I've been releasing content every single day, so I have a new episode dropping every single day, uh, which is cool. You get insights from various different collectors. I try to uh, try to incorporate many different things within the hobby. So people that collect, um, you know, if if Jeremy is mainly a hockey guy, you know, I want to ask, you know, con, you know, I want to ask questions related to to the topics that are relevant. To that person um, so that's what I try to do I try to give people different perspectives um, within the hobby you know try to get content that isn't you know out there currently because there's not enough like with Jeremy for instance there's not enough hockey content you know and there's just not enough people talking about it and I think there are strong collector uh, communities within these hobby you know within this hobby uh, that should be more prevalent and more talked about and I want to do it in a concise fashion so hobby quick hitters you're releasing one episode every day you've released one per day so far in 2022 and how long do you expect like first of all we recorded it feels like six weeks ago already that we or so that that we recorded it and you released it today that's fine but how long are you are you planning to do this for uh i'm gonna try to do it the full 365 so my goal is to just you know do one a day i've been 
you know, consistent. I think your, your, your episode was episode 44. So, you know, I'm, I, you know, I had a lot of these in, in my lockbox to where I recorded, you know, over 60 in the first go around and I'm going to start recording again, you know, in, in the, over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, and I'm hoping to get a little bit more, you know, some of them become, if you're talking about current events may get a little bit outdated to where like, you know, I had Super Bowl predictions or something like that. And, you know, the you know, Super Bowl is about to happen. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it, it's tough, you know, with, with, you know, especially being a content creator like yourself, Jeremy, it's like, you know, editing and, and certain things like that are very time consuming, especially if you're doing it by yourself. So, you know, it, it, it's a cool passion project. And, and my other, um, my other one, I'm fortunate enough to, to do a show for collectible TV. Uh, it's called the panel on that show. It's a, it's a lot more, it's a lot different because, you know, I have a producer, I have an editor, you know, so I just show up and, you know, pretty much just talk. So, um, that, that it's a little bit different from, uh, you know, from uh, my other content, but it's, it's a great show as well. You should check it out. It's kind of like around the horn, but for the hobby. So we talk about current topics of that week. Um, and it's me, Jesse Craig, uh, and, uh, Dave Kohler from SCP. And our host is, uh, Bram Weinstein, who's the, who's the voice of, uh, the Washington commanders now. And, uh, you know, previously with ESPN. Ah, very cool, man. Very cool. Well, I also do a show on collectible TV called collectible live. <laughs> so nice that we, we have that in common. We're colleagues in that, in that manner, I suppose you could say, um, are you going to be at the mint collective at the end of March? I will be there. Yep. Good. Look, look forward to seeing you there. Okay. We are going to wrap this up. I'm going to go to a few comments that have been coming in. Uh, Joe Perot, thank you very much. Glad you enjoyed the show. Jahan says, uh, this is a killer episode. There you go. That's great feedback for you, Nick. And thank you for the comment, Jahan. Uh, Birds on the bat. Thank you very much for tuning in as always. Darren wants to, how long are the uh, episodes, Nick? And I'll, you'll check them out. Very ambitious. Yeah. They're, as you said, they're, three to five minutes sort of thing. So each episode, I feel like ours might've gone a little bit longer, but you never, you never know. And Troy updates me for a final time, three, two for the flames end of the second period. That's good for my team. Awesome stuff. Thank you, Jeff Hart for the comment. All right, uh, Nick, thank you for joining. This has been great, man. You are a wealth of information in some of the areas, of the hobby that we don't talk about as often as Maybe we will in the future. Who knows? Really interesting stuff. So I want to thank you for coming on, making the time. Thanks for having me on your hobby quick hitters. I hope a lot of people discover that from watching tonight and uh, and go check you out there. So uh, Troy says, thank, thank you so much to Nick and Jeremy for the live stream. Great show. Thank you, Troy. Appreciate that feedback. Final comment to you, Nick, uh, to say goodbye and all that. And then we're going to we're going to end this. And again, to everybody, I'll be back on after hours. In, in about five or so minutes after this ends. Over to you. Thank you. Thank all you guys for tuning in. Thank you for having me on, Jeremy. I mean, it's always it's always fun talking hobby. I mean, I feel like I feel like we could sit here and talk for hours, you know, which we did. But uh, you know, it's 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 always fun because there's so much to talk about, and you know, I don't think there's um, enough content out there related to our hobby. I think there's enough people that care about the hobby and want to watch stuff like this. So you know, I, more power to you, Jeremy. I think you're at the forefront of uh, everything that you. Do. Well, I appreciate that, man. Thank you so much. Uh, so keep up, do keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate it very much. Junk Wax Packs, thank you all for a great show. Thank you, Junk Wax Packs. Philly Joe learned a lot. Me too. This is a great episode, Nick. 
Hang tight right there, everybody. Again, I will be back on After Hours. I'm looking forward to this episode of After Hours. So come join me very soon. Watch the channel. I will be hitting the go live button in about five or six minutes. So we will see you all then. And if not, enjoy Super Bowl tomorrow and have a great week ahead. This show is over. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.